Let me lead us in prayer now. Our loving Father, we thank you so much that you speak to us, that we don't have to guess what you're thinking, but we can know it for sure. And we pray now that by your Holy Spirit, through your word, that we would understand what it is that you have done in the world and what you are doing in the world. And we do pray today especially that as we look at your word, that you would help us to find and to know what it means to have a fresh start in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this year, I, uh, I fought the fire at the top of the escarpment up at uh, Carrington Falls. Um, and to stop it spreading, I was told that I needed to start another fire, which if you didn't know what you were doing, you'd think was just madness. So I did what I was told, and I got myself a drip torch. That's me there. Very, very clean uniform. That's the first day on the job. Uh, and that little red tin I've got there is full of a mixture of diesel and petrol. And in this lovely forest, bush area, you start lighting it up and crackle, crackle, crackle. And you're thinking, I'm in the middle of the bush. There's a fire over there. What am I doing? I'm lighting a fire. Okay, I'm doing what I'm told. And so I did. And that was a little bit later on. And the whole area in front of me was just totally on fire, which is really fun. Um, uh, because, not because lighting fires is fun, kids, um, but because, <laughs> because through that fire, and because there were very smart people knowing what to do with fire, not just me who was just burning things, uh, we were, because of the way the wind was going and things like that, we set this fire up and it burned directly towards the fire that was already burning and they got together and the fire went out. That's really, really cool. But the reason I tell you this is that I started that whole fire with just a tiny little match. With a very, very little thing, that tiny little match, we were able to start up a bush, which then lit up a whole area, a massive area that was then on fire, as you can see right there. The message of Jesus also started really, really small. In fact, in the weeks, and death, weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection, there's probably only a few hundred people who followed him and believed in him. That's not very many at all, is it? But as we heard from the second chapter of the book of Acts a little bit earlier on, the Holy Spirit poured petrol on that little fire and within weeks there were at least 10,000 people or more who believed, that, well, they, they confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, which meant that they were saved. And that little fire got bigger and bigger and bigger. But in the last two weeks, we've also seen how Satan, who is the arch enemy of God, wanted to put the fire out, or at least to try and slow it down. And so what he did to do that was he created some division in the church. Remember, there was fighting there. Ananias and Sapphira robbed money, sort of, so to speak. They embezzled stuff. And that impacted the truth, sorry, the trust within the church. And it had the potential to really mess things up, but it didn't. And then there was the issue also of all the administrative headaches that happened because the, the Greek-speaking Jews were sort of having a bit of biff with the, the Hebrew-speaking Jews and it was all a bit messy. And then they said, well, we need to get some people to organise this stuff, but let's not get the apostles doing that because they've got to keep spreading the church. Let's, let's get some others to do that, which they did. And that 
was able to mean that the church kept growing and growing and growing. So that's awesome. But there was a third satanic strategy. Can you remember it? And that was persecution. If, if they can't sort of distract the Christians, then the best way to stop the church is to just start abusing and killing off the leaders of the church. That's surely going to do it, isn't it? If they could sort of inflict some physical harm on those leaders, then you'd think that that would slow them down or even extinguish it. And they did that with the apostles. They didn't kill them, but they certainly beat them up terribly. That didn't slow them down at all. And then there was Stephen, one of those seven administrative guys, and he was dragged before the courts, and in the end, they killed him. And from that very moment, we see that right there, the Apostle Paul, as we would know him in due course, was right in support of this graphic act of killing, killing uh, Stephen off by using those stoning techniques. He said, we read in chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now, there's no doubt this must have sent shivers down the spine of the believers as they, as they talked to each other about the horrific murder of Stephen at the hands of the Jewish leaders at the time. And in a sense, it did actually shake the church up. We read in the second half of that verse that a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. At this very point, a wave of persecution began. A wave of persecution began. It swept over the church like a kind of a tsunami over a beach. There was destruction and there was panic and there was pain. And the believers were scattered. Before that, they were all huddled together there in Jerusalem. They hung out near the temple and they did their big... Imagine 10,000 of them all hanging together as one. It would have been awesome. And then suddenly, bang, and they are all boom, scattered. And that is what happened there. Is it good? Or is it bad? Well, before we get the chance to reflect upon that, we read again... About Something about that great moment of evil that happened in verse 2. We read that some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. Uh, whether or not it was the fact that the killing of Stephen was good for the growth of the church, well, in a sense that doesn't matter because they knew Stephen. They loved Stephen. And Stephen was smashed to death. And so they mourned him, rightly so. If you've been along to a funeral, as some of us have been to some, or maybe many, you'll know what it's like to say goodbye to somebody. And when they're very, very old and they've lived a full life, you, you rejoice in God, even though you're sad to say goodbye. But when there's a tragedy like this, it is right to have great mourning. And that is what they did with the death of Stephen. But the death of Stephen was just the beginning of what was to happen. Because in verse 3 we read that Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. To destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. He was hands-on in trying to persecute those who trusted in Jesus. See, Saul got 
a bit of a taste for Christian blood as he stood there holding the coats at the stoning of Stephen. And it seemed that nothing was going to stop his satanic zeal to wipe out this church. But the message of Jesus was spreading like wildfire, like a match that hit a dry bush and just off it went. Because we read in verse 4 that the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. What happened was that the persecution scattered the church. These believers just kept preaching the good news about Jesus everywhere. Whenever they bumped into somebody, they'd, they'd say, oh, hang on, are you from around here? No, I was from Jerusalem. Really, why are you here? Let me tell you the story. I was, you know, blah, 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 Jesus is Lord. Woohoo! And off they went. They just couldn't be quiet about it. They just wanted to keep talking about it all the time. Now, sadly, I don't think we see the same sort of zeal for talking about Jesus today as we did back then. It's not like all the time we hear Christians as we're waiting in a line for something or chatting with somebody that we'd say, oh, by the way, are you a friend with Jesus yet or not? It doesn't necessarily come up in conversation all the time. Uh, there are other things, though, that do seem to come up in conversation all the time. You know, like how good it is to shop at Aldi. There are some people who think they're just Aldi evangelists or, you know, or the fact that we should subscribe to PewDiePie. Yeah, yeah, 100,000 subscribers, is that 100 million? Yeah, that's probably right. Or how good the latest Marvel movie is or whatever it is. People just want to say, or, you know, did you see the end of Avengers? I haven't seen it yet, so don't tell me. You know, whatever it is, Endgame, uh, whatever it is, people just want to talk about these things. Like it's naturally part of life. But not so much about Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? But back then it was. Like, hi, how are you going? Good, have you met Jesus? Whoa, straight in their face with that. But I reckon if we were thrown violently out of our houses because we followed Jesus, we would, it would have pushed our buttons and we'd be banging on about Jesus left, right and centre. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And that is what is happening right now in the early church. And at this point in the story, we hone in on one particular guy and his name is Philip. Remember, there were seven men who were chosen as the administrators, as the kind of the church leaders in that way. There were, tw there were 12 apostles, but there were seven. Then these other ones, there were Stephen and a bunch of other guys, including Philip. Philip was one of those guys, just like Stephen. And he's, not Steve, he's not Philip the apostle, right, the, the, the disciple. He's Philip the administrator, right? And he's left Jerusalem because he's been booted out and scattered everywhere. And this is what happens, verse 5. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and he told the people there about the Messiah. Okay, fair enough. That's nice. Uh, we read some simple facts that Philip left Jerusalem to go to Samaria. Now, I reckon for most of us, they're just two names on a map. You know, often when I'm preparing my sermons, I'll go into Google Maps and I'll try and work out where things are and how long it takes to walk from one spot to another and stuff like that. A lot of the names have changed over the years. You can talk about that over dinner, why that's the case. But when I looked at that, you can sort of see that there's, some, there's Jerusalem sort of here and then up there a bit more is Samaria. Uh, what's the big deal about leaving Jerusalem to go to Samaria? 
Well, we need to rewind things a little bit, and that is that there was some massive rivalry between Judea and Samaria. How many tribes were there of, in, uh, of Israel? Twelve. Okay. Fast forward from when they had the twelve tribes, and there was a big biff. There was the ten up the top and the two down the bottom. And things got so fractured between the northern king of, kingdom of the ten and the bottom kingdom of the two that they became like enemies. A massive fight. And what's more, the ten up the top said, we don't like your Jerusalem temple anymore. We'll make our own. And so they set up their own temple up at Mount Gerizim. And what's more, they said, we don't like your big, fat Old Testament. We're just going to pick the first five books as ours, thanks. And we'll just have the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And that's it. These ten up there are called the Samaritans. And the bottom ones are called the Jews. So you've got Samaria and Judea. Now, why am I telling you all this? It's because you need to know Jews and Samaritans are kind of like cats and dogs. You know, you sort of, they don't get on well, right? And they've got a very big, long, painful history between a lot of them. And so the idea of this Jewish guy rocking up to the Samar Samaritan person and all the Samaritan people up there in Samaria and talking about how Jesus, the Jew, is the Messiah... You'd think this is just going to go terribly wrong, terribly bad. Because the problem was that the Jews were enemies with the Samaritans. They were enemies with the Samaritans. Maybe this makes sense of the story of the Good Samaritan. Have you, you, I don't know if you've given much thought of that. But it ends up being that the Samaritan, who's normally the enemy, ends up being the good guy in Jesus' story. Anyway, you have to go and do your homework and read that story again, knowing that news. But the point is that they were enemies. The idea of Jews mixing with Samaritans was unheard of. So how did it go? Have a listen to this. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and to see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralysed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in the city. It just went off. They were so excited to hear about Jesus being the Messiah. And there was great joy. Look at that. There was great joy in that city. The Samaritans received Jesus with great joy. I've been a Christian for a long time and a lot of you have as well. And you may have forgotten the great joy it was to finally know that your sins are forgiven. Uh, the great joy to finally know that you have certainty for eternity. That no matter what happens to you now, you are safe in the arms of Jesus. That brought great joy back then and maybe it's been a while since then. But I'm hoping that you will remember again afresh what that great joy is. But it's even possible that you here tonight amongst this group of people, there might be one or two of you, maybe, who, who has never actually personally met Jesus. And you may not yet know that great joy. And I want to say to you tonight, listen up, because I want you to consider whether you this evening might come to know Jesus for the first time and have this great joy. Anyway, this is pretty exciting. There's a lot of joy. And there's one particular guy who 
He's particularly excited about what's happening up there in Samaria. We read this guy, he's called Simon. He'd been a sorcerer, a kind of a magician there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as Simon the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. Uh, This guy was an amazing magician. He was an impressive magician. He's the guy you would have you would pay money to go down and, and see him at the local club, you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat or something like that. You know, he's the guy you'd go, wow, how do you do that with the cards? How do you always guess the one that I'm thinking of? You know, all that stuff. He was an impressive magician. And all of this was great until Philip came along. Philip, who is one of the seven guys who's talking about Jesus, who's from Jerusalem. He comes along, he does these amazing things. What is it going to do to Simon the sorcerer, the magic guy? Well, it seems that, well, let's have a look here, verse 12. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptised. It's, we don't have to worry about Simon for a moment, although we're going to see him come back in the story shortly. But the point is that someone even more amazing than Simon's come along and people are won over. And what have they done? Well, we see that many people responded with baptism. It's just like what happened at the time of Pentecost. There they were. They were on the temple steps. 3,000 people said, I want to follow Jesus as Lord. And they said... We're not going to have a baptism service later on. Just fill up the pools. We'll go and have baptism right now. And they did. And they got dunked right down, right out of the water. And the outward sign of that water showed what had happened on the inside. It gave them something to hold on to, something that was physical that they could realise had actually shown what had really happened on the inside, that they had been changed, that they'd been forgiven, that they'd been washed from their sins. And baptism is awesome. And I've got to say, if you have not been baptised and yet you're a follower of Jesus, come and tell me because I'd love to baptise you. Uh, most of us have been baptised, but maybe you haven't been yet. Let me know. It's a terrific thing to do that God tells us we should do because it will enable us to see on the outside what's happened on the inside and to do it publicly is just an awesome thing. They didn't muck around though. They just got straight into it and a whole lot got baptised and that is pretty amazing And one particular baptism stands out, verse 13. Simon himself believed and was baptised. This is the magician guy, right? He says, count me in, I'm going for a swim. So he began following Philip wherever he went. And he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When you get one magician who's really impressed by somebody else who's a magician, then you must... You've got to see that the, the, the magic's pretty amazing. You know, the tricks are pretty amazing. Uh, I, I, there's a show on TV, I, I think it's Penn & Teller, one of their shows, where they, they try and guess what the magician's done to be able to make the magic trick happen, the illusion sort of thing. And uh, it's pretty cool when they're stumped. It's like, I don't know how you did that. In a sense, that's what's happening here with Simon. But we know that with, with what Philip's doing, he, his miracles are actually from the Holy Spirit, that God is doing amazing things through them. And through all of this, we see that amazing thing has happened. Samaritans are now following Jesus 
the Jew. Samaritans now follow Jesus, the Jew. Shouldn't surprise us, though. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Right back at the seventh, uh, the eighth chapter of the first, eighth verse of the first chapter of Acts, Jesus said, "You go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." He said it was going to happen, and it did. And so, all of this amazing stuff is happening with Samaritans becoming Christians. But how did the Jews think about that? How did the Christians who were Jews think about that. Well, we read in verse 14 that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. Oh, okay, what's going to happen now? Like, here's Philip, he's a bit of a broken arrow, going off and doing his own thing, trying to convert all the Samaritans. Bad, bad, bad. Let's send in Peter and John to sort it out. Uh, well, it didn't turn out to be a problem at all. In fact, they were pretty excited. In fact, they were strange. It was, something strange happened. Because we read that as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Huh? I, I hope you're going kind of in your head going, Huh? Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. Huh? What is happening here? It says they believed in Jesus, but they then needed the Holy Spirit. Huh? I was like, this just messes with my brain. Because the apostles came down and gave the Holy Spirit to the believers. Huh? Do you find that weird? I do. This is not normal. This is not what normally happens. Because normally when a person trusts in Jesus as Lord, then that person is filled with the Holy Spirit straight away. It's a package deal. You meet Jesus and the Spirit, he comes into you straight away. So what on earth is happening here? Well, controversial. Okay. You expect a controversy, you're getting it tonight. Some Christians think that what you get here is normal, that this is totally normal, okay? So you follow Jesus, great, step one, tick. Now you want to have the good stuff, you then need the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, then you get tongues and prophecy and all these other special things will happen. And that's the normal part of the Christian life. Some Christians will say to you, I'm so pleased that you trust in Jesus. You should come along to our church and receive the second blessing of the Holy Spirit and all this stuff will come to you. Where are they getting that from? Well, I reckon they're probably getting it from this part of the Bible. But there are other Christians who look pretty different, uh, who will also say that a kind of second blessing happens and they're a little bit more traditional, kind of you those who have a bit of a, a Roman or even Anglo-Catholic view of the scriptures, they'll say that you get saved through baptism and then after that you need confirmation because you need a bishop to do the laying on the hands. And the bishop is in the apostolic succession and it goes all the way back to, you know, the real old, old dudes. And there you get the kind of apostles themselves 
doing this laying on of hands. So whether or not it's a Pentecostal church with the second blessing and all of the tricks that come with it, or it's an Anglo-Catholic kind of perspective that says you've got to get confirmed before you're saved, both of those come back to this particular verse of the Bible. Have they got it right? No, I don't think so. What I think we're seeing here is a special one-off event. This is not saying, go and do the same. It's not saying that when you're in my year three and four scripture class and you hear about Jesus and you say, I want to follow Jesus, that you then got to go and get the Holy Spirit afterwards. No, it's a package deal. Jesus, Holy Spirit, all at once, two for the price of one. Bang! You don't have to have a second blessing like that. But what we see here is a one-off event. Why? Why did this happen? I think it's like another Pentecost. See, the first Pentecost was for people who knew Jesus but had not yet received the Holy Spirit in that special moment in the life of the church. And then so the tongues come down and the wind... Down it comes and boom, the Holy Spirit's there and the church is on fire. And it's right there on the steps of the temple at Jerusalem. Now they scoot out and they go up to Samaria and they have another one. And so the Holy Spirit, sound effect, down there you go, you're waking up. The Holy Spirit comes down and they get the Holy Spirit, people who already knew Jesus. Is that normal? No, it's a weird, but it's good weird, but it's a historical weird. And it's not a normal weird, right? It's, it's just a weird, right? But it's good weird because at that point, the Holy Spirit came down upon them, empowered them to talk about Jesus. And at that point, we see that there was this continuity, this connection with what was happening there in Jerusalem. And so even Samaritans could be friends with Jesus. Wow. And they did. But for us today, make no mistake, new believers immediately receive the Holy Spirit. So if you think, oh, I think I'm a second-rate Christian because I've never had a second blessing. No, 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 no. You've got two for the price of one. You've already been blessed. You've trusted in Jesus as Lord and the Spirit immediately came into you. Because you're not living at the time of Pentecost and Acts and stuff. That was back then. All right. I needed to go on a bit of a hobby horse there. I needed to get my head around that because that was just weird. I'm reading it thinking, what on earth is happening here? I'm hoping you were going, what? But this makes sense. Anyway, Simon did something weird. Verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he thought, ah, he offered them money to buy this power. Uh, face slap. Ah. Uh. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Simon the source was kind of cool. I can see why he was impressed by all of that, but he's completely got it wrong. You don't try and buy the power of the apostles. That's a really bad idea. Verse 20 to 23, Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord, and perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. What did Simon do? 
he tried to buy power in the church. He said, I'd like a bit of that too. Where do I pay? Uh, in fact, if you've ever heard of the expression simony, uh, where people will, use, will pay money to try and get power in the church, this is where it gets from. And so Simon replies, verse 24, Pray to the Lord for me that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. He didn't say, I'm really sorry, I'll stop doing that. It's like, can you just make sure bad stuff doesn't happen to me? Not really enough to pray for that. But even with this hiccup, good things continue to happen. Verse 25, After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. The Samaritans have met Jesus and more and more are meeting him and responding to the good news and this is awesome. But as for Philip, he's got somebody else he needs to talk to. And so we read now, as for Philip, verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. All right, so if you're imagining it on a map, you've got Jerusalem here, and then you've got Samaria up there. Well, he's been told to go down that way, towards Gaza, which sort of you keep going and you end up in Egypt, sort of that way. So he's told to go down there. He's sent south towards Egypt. Far, far away from Jerusalem, he's now in Judea, but he's not in Jerusalem, so to speak. Anyway, as this happened, we read, he met someone, verse 27 and 28. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia. You know, pretty powerful, impressive guy. He was a eunuch of great authority under the Candate, the Queen of Ethiopia. Okay, so you know when, when you see in Parliament they have someone read out the budget on budget night, that's the treasurer. Well, that's this guy. He's pretty, pretty powerful, pretty famous. He'd gone, we read, to Jerusalem to worship. And he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So he'd been picked up in his Commonwealth car and he'd gone up there to Jerusalem to go and do the Jewish stuff at the temple and he's coming back and he's reading the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament, it wasn't written, wasn't invented then, but they were reading the Old Testament and he's sitting there reading the book of Isaiah. And we read here that, that what has happened is that Philip has met an Ethiopian Jew who's returning from Jerusalem. You got it? He's a Jew and he's from Ethiopia. He's probably dark-skinned, he's a eunuch, a very different kind of person to the others we'd been seeing about. But then, verse 29, we read that the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk beside the carriage. So Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. That's pretty cool. And Philip asked... Do you understand what you are reading? It's a pretty gutsy thing to be asking to somebody, especially someone who's pretty important in an impressive chariot. It's like, how dare you ask me if I, you know, do I look stupid or something? It's like, well, no. Verse 31, the man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? It's a pretty awesome answer. And he urged Philip, come up into the carriage and sit with him. Huh. So Philip, who's been running along beside How's it going in there? How are you going with Isaiah? Making sense? Okay, stop the thing. And he gets in the thing, sits down, and he has a chat with him. Why would that be the case? 
Well, the reason is that he needed help to recognise Jesus in Isaiah. He needed to recognise Jesus in Isaiah. Did you read here before what was read out? Very, very famous bit of the Old Testament. Verses 32 and 33 of this chapter of Acts, quote from Isaiah, where it says, The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And it is talking about Jesus, even though it was written 700 years before Jesus. You, you go there to the, the end of Isaiah, it's got some amazing stuff that sounds like it was all about Jesus, because it is. And so, anyway, verse 34, the eunuch asks Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or was he talking about somebody else? Ah, thanks for asking. So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. He said, you want to know who is the lamb? It's Jesus. You want to know who was the slaughtered lamb? It's Jesus. And when he explained it all, it was amazed. It was amazed. And so this powerful, wealthy Ethiopian Jew was able to recognize in his scriptures Jesus. And right at that moment, he knew Jesus. And we read that verse 36, as they came along, as they rode along, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop. Driver, stop the carriage. And they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Now, <laughs> if I was training up people in evangelism and I'd say, look, just you talk to people about Jesus and maybe they might say, oh, I'm a little bit interested it's never going to be this good, really. Like this guy says, wow, I'm reading the Bible myself. Can you explain it to me? Oh, it's all about Jesus. Great, I'm going to follow him. And can I get baptised right now? Let's do it. There's water. Oh, you know, that, that, all, that all happened very quickly, you know. <laughs> and that escalated fast. And it did. Because before we know it, this eunuch is wet. Because on the outside, he has water. Because on the inside, he's being washed. Right there, this Ethiopian is immediately baptised by Philip. It's great. Something has happened on the inside of that eunuch, which is very special. Because before that, he was not friends with God. He had sin in his life that blocked him being accepted by God. But now it's washed. He's clean. He'd gone up to the temple to do all that religious stuff that wasn't working. But now he has met God himself as he's come to Christ in the scriptures and it's amazing this man now has a fresh start with God a fresh start with God and I wonder if you have had a fresh start with God most of us in this room have but maybe you haven't maybe you have not had a fresh start with God people go out of their way to try and have fresh starts in life maybe they change careers completely or move far far away to a new suburb or state or even country and say i i need a fresh start you can have a fresh start tonight 
if you come to Jesus, just like the Ethiopian did? Would you like to have your sins washed away like the Ethiopian man? Would you like to experience the great joy of all the people in Samaria? Well, if you'd like to do that, all you've got to do is talk to Jesus. Here's a prayer up here on the screen. I've also got it written in your notes. Let me read it to you. It's the kind of prayer that if you said these words to Jesus and meant them, then you would have that fresh start straight away, immediately. Here are the words. It says, Dear Jesus, sorry for disobeying and ignoring you. Thank you for dying in my place. I follow you as my ruler and saviour. Help me to trust in you all my life. Amen. And that, that's the kind of, a, I just wrote that, nothing special about it, just sort of summarises the bits and pieces you need to say to Jesus to become his friend. And I wonder whether or not you might like to pray that prayer tonight. What I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to ask us all just to shut our eyes. I'm going to say one line and then I'm going to leave a gap. And that gap of silence is going to be long enough for you to repeat those words in your head directly to Jesus. And those words that I say can be your words. So let's pray now. Dear Jesus, sorry for disobeying and ignoring you. Thank you for dying in my place. I follow you as my ruler and saviour. Help me to trust in you all my life. Amen. Friends, this prayer brings a fresh start. If you've prayed that and meant that, then now God looks at you as if you had never sinned. You're forgiven. Your sins are washed away. You have certainty for eternity. You are safe in the arms of Jesus. You've got a fresh start. And if that's the case, I'd love you to let me know that you've made that fresh start. A great way to do that is you can just tick that box on that response slip that I talked to you about. It says right there on the bottom, I prayed today to become a Christian. And you can put your name on the back and slip it into the red bags in a moment. Or you can tell me over dinner or at the door. I'd love to chat with you and encourage you and rejoice with you and help you know what to do to keep growing. It's an amazing thing to have a fresh start. But what happens just before we get to the very end is we see Philip needs to scoot. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch never saw him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Of course he did. He's got a fresh start. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north, the town of Azotus, and he came and he preached the good news there and in every town along the way till he came to Caesarea. See, this Ethiopian was rejoicing. And Philip now headed north, kept telling him about Jesus, and he keeps doing that till he gets to Caesarea. And we're going to meet him a bit further on in the book of Acts when he's up there then. Friends, the Jewish leaders tried to shut down the Bible, tried to shut down the church, tried to shut down Jesus, and they failed. 
Because as they, there was this intense flame burning there in Jerusalem. They thought, we'll put this out by spreading it. Uh, That's not a good idea. You want to put out a fire, you've got to contain it and starve it of oxygen. You don't spread it all over the place. But that's what they did. And the fire of the gospel was spreading everywhere. It caught on fire up in Samaria. And it caught on fire down on the way to Gaza. And it caught on fire further up in Azotus. And from there it continued to spread all over Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth and even to Jamboree in 2019. And friends, we are on fire because the Spirit has given us the truth of Jesus. And the fire burns tonight as bright as ever. For we know that Jesus is Lord and that in him we have a fresh start. Let's pray. Loving Father, it's just such a buzz to see how the church exploded and just spread everywhere. And we thank you for how your spirit led that to happen. And we pray, Father, that you would keep, in, uh, keep your spirit being poured out upon us so that we would have that energy and excitement to keep preaching Christ and having him known. And Father, for anyone tonight who has made a fresh start by knowing Jesus, would you keep growing them in their faith? And for everyone in this room who knows Jesus already, we pray that tonight that that fire of passion for Christ would burn more and more in our lives so that others would come to know how good it is to have Jesus as our loving ruler and to have a fresh start. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.